come to one of the most controversial chapters in the whole of the New Testament. Perhaps even we could say uh, in the whole Bible when it comes to the amount of confusion and arguing and division, this chapter has caused quite a bit of all of that. Now, of course, there are some really graphic and horrible things described in the Old Testament. And, I, and we could argue that those are at least as controversial, but when it comes to impact on churches and impact on families and on theology and cranking out the old printing press of the new books, I don't know that you could beat Revelation 20 for all of that. Let's be honest. Let's admit that good people, good people, have not only differed on this chapter, but they've been so convinced that their interpretation of the chapter is the only one that is acceptable and the only one that is faithful to scripture and that it is central to the Christian faith. Good, honest people, many of them have determined that their interpretation is the correct one, the right one, the only one that pleases God, and they don't agree with each other. In fact, they attack each other. They write books against each other. There, there used to be a lot of formalized debates. Now we just have social media. I'm quite aware that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33 says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And yet in that very chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, we find probably the second or third most confusing and controversial chapters in the New Testament because there we have discussions of worship, speaking in tongues, women's participation in worship um, and ministry, or not, according to how one reads it. It has caused a lot of fighting, a lot of um, attacks, a lot of debates and the like. Uh, see that this is already working over here, so I'm gonna try to get the confusion of this down. Allow me to move around. This is what you get when you go live, people. You get stuff like this, all right? Here we go. See, this isn't a polished product. This is just me in my office. I don't think it helps us to act like things like this aren't in the Bible, confusing passages that create controversy wherever they go. Let's not pretend that they're not there. In a discussion, a friend came to me just stunned in a discussion about a very controversial subject in scripture. Um, they were uh, they were going back and forth with and just in a discussion, not even an argument with the, uh, a leader of a church and the leader's wife was there and there were some others there. And whenever my friend laid out that the words here can mean this, but they can also mean this, and in their day, it worked like this. He was hushed by the wife of this church leader who looked at him and said, God would not give us a book that is hard to understand. He came to me just shocked. I was shocked when I heard it. Have you read it? Oh, there are pieces of the book, large swaths of the book that are easy to understand, hard to live, hard to put into practice, but there are also large swaths of scripture that are just brutal. 
and trying to narrow, if God had not given us a book, which is hard to understand, why, how, how can we account for all these churches and for all the people that have been burned by these churches or burned out by their trying to figure out what the Bible was trying to say? Can we just be honest and say that we, like Jacob down by the river Jabbok, we wrestle with God. Now we need to be take care that we do not wrestle with scripture to our own destruction. That's important. What does that mean? Well, that would be such like taking my take on Revelation 20 and saying, people, if you don't believe it this way, you don't love Jesus, you don't love God, and you probably don't like kittens. I'm wrestling with the scripture to my own destruction and I'll probably destroy a few others along with me. Humility. Humility, come on. God wouldn't give us a book that's hard to understand. Do you really want to go there? That would mean that everybody that disagrees with you is either being dishonest, stupid, or just silly. Are these the labels you want to put on everybody who disagrees with you? I think you parked your life under that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you're just snacking away, not understanding that was the sin that destroyed paradise. We don't do that to people. We don't make those judgments. I'm quite aware that I and Pope Francis would agree upon some things and disagree on a great many other things, but I have zero power or right to look at him and say, now, Francis, you, um, this just isn't hard to understand. And you're either being dishonest or silly or just ignorant. What in the world gets inside of our heads? Peter warned about us destroying ourselves and others with these passages. In 2 Peter, however, chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. If Peter struggled with some things Paul wrote, it's okay to put on your humility hat and say, you know something? Sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes we just have to believe in the dark because God didn't turn the lights on in this particular passage. Sadly, we get people and we always have had these people, always, who decide that the more murky and esoteric a scripture is, the more important it must be, and that they, only they, or their group, only their group, or their prophet, their rabbi, their pastor, only they have unlocked a passage that nobody else has ever seen before. And if it's murky and uh, just really mysterious, that means we have the wisdom to solve the puzzle and therefore we are important. We have an identity as being the wise ones to whom the secrets of God have been revealed. Oh my, the siren call of being that special is almost irresistible to so many human hearts. We can end up finding our identity in our created specialness 
and all the drama and the mystery that we are the wise ones. We have seen the prophecy we spoke and God gave us words, the prophecy that we can then give to you and then you have to hear us because God gave it to us. Even Homer Simpson did that. One of the episodes of the symptoms, uh, Simpson, symptoms, the Simpsons, he, um, he also was predicting the end of the world. And whenever people challenged him, he goes, but, but I really feel it. But it re I really feel it's true. So it has to be true. That is just as valid as all of the modern day prophets out there right now, self-styled rabbis or whatever they are, that say, we know what all the end of the world means and wouldn't, you know, what are the odds? It's gonna be now. We, um, we have a problem right now in the United States. And this may be one of the more upsetting things that I say to some of you, but we have to talk, as Christians, we have to talk about this. We lost a lot of credibility because a ton of Christian groups, charismatic groups, messianic rabbi groups, messianic Jew groups, um, a lot of Protestant groups that um, are, let's say, not mainline, like, uh, let's say, a Presbyterian or Lutheran, and I'm not mainline either, so I'm not trying to paint everybody bad or everybody good, but a lot of them wrap themselves around American politics, and they even had a huge prayer rally on the Washington Mall before the election, where they blow shofars, those, those um, um, ram's horn trumpets, and they declared prophecies that uh, Donald Trump was going to be elected because the Bible said so, and that this was a coming harbinger of the great days, and you had Rabbi Khan and all of his acolytes up there and a whole bunch of others praying, saying, this is the way it's gonna be, and even even to the point where uh, Rabbi Khan, who is a Christian, calls himself a rabbi, I have no idea if he was ordained or not. That's not the point. But I watched this stunned as uh, Trump, uh, you know, they were blowing trumpets and then there was thunder in heaven. And then he read a statement from Trump about how they're gonna win and move forward. And he goes, the Trump, he held it up, the trumpet sounded. A lot of these people have gone quiet right now but we lost a ton of credibility with the world. We really did. Um, when you wrap your arms around politics, left or right, it's not about Trump. It's about whoever you did. If you wrapped it around Biden, you're wrong. We don't do that with the kingdoms of this world, but Christians do. And why? They get seduced by prophets and these great leaders who have un, they've opened up the mysteries of scripture. All of those other people before, it doesn't matter whether they were Augustine or Luther or Calvin, it doesn't matter who they were, they didn't get it, but our guy did. We're special. No, no, all of us have received grace from God. And our message is still love God and love each other. And I know that's not nearly as dramatic or fun as the world's going to end. But will this cause these people to back up and say, well, you know, we were wrong. We we're absolutely wrong. We need to re-examine. No, I've seen it all my life. I've seen the Jehovah's Witnesses. And again, not knocking these people at all. 
uh, make prophecy after prophecy that failed, 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 even in, in, into the 70s when they lost a good one third of their worldwide membership because of this big push that Jesus was going to return and start his 1000 year reign right then in the 70s. Well, it didn't happen. It hadn't happened the other times they predicted it. And they weren't alone. The Seventh-day Adventist, modern-day charismatic prayer warriors, um, all of these people. Look it up. Hundreds of times this has happened. Where somebody grabs a difficult chapter like chapter 20, and we have to do all this, I'm sorry. We have to do all of this before we approach a chapter that has cost so much of this or our reaction to it has caused, all right? And, and I'm, I'm gonna put some of the blame on the chapter because we're so far removed from that world. And knowing what was in their heads and hearts is at best a guess for us. And I'm aware some people will think that's blasphemous because God wouldn't give us a book that's hard to understand. Rubbish. You read Ezekiel? I await your take on every verse. And Jeremiah? Okay, good, good. The Daniel prophecy couldn't be hard to understand because we've all interpreted that the same way, haven't we? No, because it is hard. It is difficult. And here's important. It may be beyond us and your rabbis and your pastors and your prophets and your seers and shaman. It may be beyond all of us because it wasn't written to us. It was written to them. While we try to enter their world, we don't always get there. And I think humility has to say, dear Lord Jesus, we don't understand this, but regardless of what it means, we, we believe you and that you will do what is right. And our job is to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind and to love each other as ourselves. Well, we're not that special. They're not that special. And by the way, please don't go through life wanting drama and wanting to find meaning and being special. Don't do that. I know we want to splash and we want to pay off. And that's another, that's a different thing than a drama and a splash and a meaning. We want to pay off. We want to see bad people get hurt. We want to see it all taken care of. We want to witness it. Premillennialist, big long word. If you don't know what it means, don't worry about it. Premillennialists make their name careers and they stand in this chapter. But if we're being fair, and I think we need to be fair, those who are not premillennialist also make their name in this chapter. I grew up reading the books of Foy E. Wallace Jr who opposed the premillennialist and the people who believed in a literal thousand year reign and wrote very big books, many times the length of the book of Revelation to explain his position and make his name. And I believe he was most likely 100% sincere. I've read books by Max R. King and his others of his ilk who believe that Jesus did come back and, and it's a pretty strange thing. Um, I've read all those two. Um, let's approach this book with all of the things we've already learned in this book. Don't treat it as a discrete unit dropped into the book from on high. All of the book 
was dropped on us. And God gave us this book, he gave them this book, and now we look back at this book and we can, we can treasure it even though up until the 16-1500s, it was still not included in some Bibles because it was just people are going, and Luther said he could not find anything of God or the Spirit in this book. Calvin never wrote or preached on this book. And the Eastern Orthodox Church, most of them only pull it out for the week before Easter to read it out loud in one service. This book cannot be central to our faith. Jesus is central to our faith. So we look for the Jesus in this book. Okay, the people, the Christians in 90 AD were in a really bad situation and the generation they were raising, their children and their children's children, they saw what was coming, but they also needed to know that God saw what was coming and that God would also be coming. And so this book was written to them. This chapter, chapter 20, does not live in isolation. It is part of a movie in words, a river in words, a torrent in words, a torrent rushing toward a battle and a payoff. But where is that payoff? Those living then who got this book, they, they understood it was for them. And they never saw a heaven on earth. They never saw the Roman emperors paraded out in front of the Christians and declared evil by God and, this, this is, and then punished in front of the Christians for their sins. They didn't get that payoff. They didn't see a Christian rise to be emperor. Don't talk to me about Constantine. His wife was a believer. He might have believed at the end of his life. It's really hard to tell with him. Everything he did was political. So let's not call him a Christian leader. All that was Rome, all that was Rome and the beast, that pagan religious system that propped up the political system, all of that would be destroyed and fall into ruins some of the people living would see some of this beginning. None of them would see its end. That said, we've been going for quite a while now, so let's finally look at the book, Revelation 20. We'll just do one through three, and I'm hoping we can do this in one lesson, but it might be a long one. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Wow. Before we get into the numbers and abysses and keys and like, don't miss this one really cool point angel comes out of heaven just grabs him satan is not the equal of god he's not the equal of the angels not when god pulls his mighty angels out and he has quite a few and just says sick him. and the, the angel comes and just grabs him that's he just manhandles angel handles him, whatever you want to call it that's just pretty cool and so take a moment and bask in the coolness of that God's going to break the back of a system that ruled the nations. 
that ruled the nations. This is going to keep him from deceiving the nations, not individuals, but nations. All right. This nothing like Rome was going to come back up on the on the radar. This was a massive worldwide, the known world to them, empire. And God was about to break its back. Rome, all of that was going to end. Now, when it ended, and as it ended, people still worshipped false gods, and they worshipped trees and rivers. Some <coughs> called themselves witches and worshipped whatever, but it's really, really hard to find anybody that was still worshipping a Roman god after the fall. It's really, really hard to find anybody today who would take any of those gods seriously in the least. It's gone, broken. And it's not like we had to wait till today for that to happen. Go way back, 1500 years. Rome wasn't all the way dead yet, but it was dead and everybody knew it was dead and people had abandoned the gods even by then. This is a, this is a strange world for us. And we come upon the word thousand. We have talked about this. We've talked about this in this book. It doesn't magically become a literal number in chapter 20. Thousand was the biggest number they had. They would talk about and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. All they could do is multiply thousand. They didn't have million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. They didn't have, the, didn't have that concept at all. In fact, you know, I think it was Galileo who said that uh, they were counted the stars and he'd counted 3,000 something of them. And so that's how many there were. The concept of the vastness of numbers had not hit anybody. So thousand was just boom. That's, that's all of them. Remember Psalm 50 verse 10, the um, cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. Well, there are more than a thousand hills on the planet. Do those cattle not belong to? Oh, of course we know what that means. It's called a synecdoche, where a subset is meant to imply them all. Um, and that there's, a synecdoche is a little bit more complicated than that, but go with that. Psalm 105, um, for example, God says that his promises will last for a thousand generations. Wait, 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 wait. What about generation 1001? Well, we all know what that means. It means that God's promises will never end. A thousand. It means enough, total, all of them, all right? Besides, look at these verses again, uh, verses one through three. We say the chain's not a literal chain and key's not a literal key and they're not real objects, they're spiritual ones. A pit's not a geographical location, it's a consequence. It's a spiritual, metaphysical, symbolic consequence. Um, and the devil's not not a real snake, um, but that, that's just a symbolic, uh, but um, that thousand years, real, literal, set, period. Don't do that with language. It's not fair with language, their language or our language. We don't play by those games. And again, the Roman world, the Jewish world, the, the Arabic world, none of them had a bigger word than thousand for numbers, and they would just multiply thousands. We do the same thing, by the way, let's not look upon them as ignorant. We'll say, I could eat a horse. Well, I'm told that the French eat horses, but I don't, I haven't really checked that out myself. 
And I don't think any of us have eaten a whole one or that we think that we could. So when someone goes, I could eat a horse, do we yell, liar? No, we understand. Hyperbole, synecdoche, hyperbole. Or, um, you know, I ate a ton of cake. Probably not. Now, if you're talking lifetime cumulative, probably. But at the party, no. And we all get that. We all understand that. I've told you millions of times, not to exaggerate. We get the point, right? Nobody has said anything millions of times. It, it's said to make a point. The numbers aren't real. We know that. And so we use synecdoche and hyperbole in our language all the time. Did you see that? Did you catch that? All the time. No, sometimes we don't use either of those. And sometimes we, we don't talk. We just sit and snack. So we don't use them all the time. But when I said that sentence, you understood it. Don't quit using your brain just because a thousand shows up in chapter 20 as it showed up all before. All right, chapter 20, verses four through six. And again, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? Rome goes away for a long time. The devil's gonna come back, but Rome's gone. Verses four through six, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. All right. Again, humility. Let's just go ahead and say, we can give our take on this, but none of us nails it and could be confident enough to therefore say, all Christian believers come to me. I have the answers. People do that. They should stop. Who are the ones judging, by the way, in verse four? Who are the ones on these thrones? Well, you know, Matthew 19, it might be the apostles, the, the 24 elders that are mentioned earlier, it could be them. I, I think it might just stand for the faithful because faithful people judge the earth, not because we're walking around going, you there, that's wrong. You there, sinful. No, tacky. We don't, no, no, no. It's because by living a life of faith, we show that evil is optional. We are not doomed to be evil. Now, all of us are, are all of us sin, all of us. And, and I'm not happy or casual about that fact. All of us have deep spiritual flaws and I'm not happy or casual about that fact. But those who live in faith, follow Jesus, repent of their sins and keep, get up and keep following Jesus, they show it's possible to do this. And therefore the world has no excuse. It can't look up and goes, well, pff, nobody could do. Yeah, look, these people did it. They followed me, even 
when they were beheaded, even when they were crucified, even when they were shut out of schools and whenever they were, they were fired for it or whenever they were divorced for it, they stood up and they believed in a quiet, simple, loving way, they believed. It's possible, evil's optional. That's what Jesus's life showed us. He who lived with zero sin showed it's possible to live with zero sin, except that we, none of us are ever gonna pull that off. So we need a savior and we have one. By the way, this is not the first time that we see beheaded or martyred believers in heaven. That's a recurrent theme in Revelation. Uh, during all the suffering and all of the pain, we get these frequent behind the scenes pictures of those who are faithful in glory. And we, we see them singing a new song and praying and agreeing with God, questioning God about his plans and then hearing those plans and rejoicing when they hear the plans. We, um, these are the meek. These are the meek who inherit the earth because by their meekness and faith, they show the world that's possible and we don't have our excuses that we always live by. So no wonder they're able to judge that evil serpent. And who are these who live and reign with Christ for a thousand years? Well, most likely you. I would assume most people watching this believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he is our savior, our Messiah. You believe. And therefore, Jesus says you will reign with him. Not, not just here. He says it in the Gospels. You'll sit with him, which is a huge deal back then. It, it implied in equality, or at least very, very high rank. Uh, and to eat, eat with somebody was equality. And Jesus, look at the book of Luke. The book of Luke is Jesus having lunch. He's going around eating with people that most religious people wouldn't associate with. And then he ate with the religious people that the sinners hated. And he goes, then you will receive a crown of life. You will reign with me. So who are these that are reigning with Christ for as long as Christ says, which this biggest number just means you're gonna reign. You, us. Don't go swaggering down the street here. It's not us, it's his power that does this. You go down the street, we don't swagger, we love. But those who believed and have been baptized are said throughout the New Testament to have come from death to life. You were resurrected. Every Jew reading this would have gotten that language and most of the Gentiles would get that language because most of the Christians at this time were still Jews and they mingled and they shared their stories. And the only Bible they had at this stage was still the Old Testament with a few of the little, you know, the epistles and maybe a gospel out there at this time. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna die on that hill of how, when that all unfolded. But think about Romans six. Baptism is a death and a resurrection. They've been resurrected. Think of Colossians two, Ephesians two both of which says we've gone from death to life through our faith in Christ and through his grace given freely to us. So we're the resurrected ones. Now, when Rome fell, again, no beast of a false religion came to take its place for a very long time. It, it left a very long void. 
Um, there are arguments that this thousand years was how long it took Rome to die, and they, they try to fit that into the fall of Constantinople, which although Byzantium was an Eastern empire, it considered itself Rome, but just Rome in the East. I really, I, I, I just can't go there. I don't think I can make those numbers become literal, and I don't think that they should become literal. I don't think that's the point. I don't think he meant us to open our Bibles and our calendars and make notes. But even at Byzantium's and Constantinople, when at, at its height, it's never anything like Rome. Uh, some ruling families looked upon it that way, and some in far-flung areas of, of, of Europe, but nothing like what it was before. Not at all. And then <clears throat> take a look at verses 7 through 10. Um, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, humility. Let's approach this with humility. And for my atheist friends, don't get excited when it says four corners of the earth. The Bible does not teach that the earth is flat. We still say the four corners of the earth because we use directional pointers and, and we use figurative language. Um, I saw the sunrise today. No, I'm sorry, that's a lie. What I saw was the sun as the earth rotated and the sun came into view. Who says that? Who says we sat on our back deck, we had a nice beverage beside us, my wife and I held hands as the earth rotated until the sun could be seen no more. <laughs> we don't do that. So let's not get really excited, all right? Allow people to use language the way people use language. Um, that said, was there an enemy that was coming that would sweep across the plains and endanger the very people of God? There would be others. But it would be over a thousand years after Rome began to fall. Um, and Rome fell as a process. Who came? Well, we don't know who Gog and Magog are here. We're going to get to that in a bit. But let's admit that two vast armies did do this. Um, the uh, Genghis Khan and the Mongols, no individual ever conquered as much of the world as fast as Genghis Khan and the Mongols. They came all the way up into Europe and they nearly took Europe. That was a close run thing. And the, by the way, they came back a couple times in, in lesser waves and tried again. What about, um, what about the Islamic armies? That again took land and took land and came all the way up and even took a lot of Europe. Uh, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, you know, Spain, uh, Portugal, at least that's most of it or a big, big portions of it. Uh, they, they were all the way up into Hungary. They were in Vienna. They, they pushed all the way around through there. And time after time, it looked like they were going to take and then 
an important leader would die or something would happen back home and somebody, or there'd be a fight between uh, the invading armies. I don't know that we really need to name this. I'm not sure we need to slap any name on Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog are names that only appear here in Revelation and in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Ezekiel is an exceptionally difficult book by any stretch of the imagination. There, by the way, there is one person named Gog elsewhere in scripture in the book of Chronicles, but it's just a list of persons' names. It's not a nation. I'm sure that guy was no relation. Ezekiel was bringing up, was speaking in spiritual vision-like tones. And he, uh, he, he had these two armies, Gog and Magog, and uh, that nobody had ever heard of or ever seen before, and that they were gonna sweep forward and they were gonna destroy so much. How much? How, how much would they destroy? How big would these armies be? Well, God would defeat them, but it would take seven years to burn their weapons. Seven. That's, don't get out your calendars. That means a lot. <laughs> and the dead, to, to bury the dead, was going to take a certain number of months. Can you guess? Seven. Ezekiel's just saying there are going to be massive armies coming against God, but he will defeat them regardless of number. That's what we're supposed to know, not running around trying to go, is it Russia? Is it Ecuador? Is it Barbados? You know, is it Canada? No, no, please people. Ezekiel was telling his people, no matter who comes, God wins. What's going on in Revelation? No matter who comes, God wins. So I grew up thinking the Soviets were gonna run tanks through the Folda Gap in Germany. If you are over 55, you did too. They didn't. But for a long time, we thought the Soviets were Gog and Magog. And there are a lot of books out there by Hal Lindsey. And I could just keep naming names that are still teaching today that said, that's it, that's it. It's all coming in the 70s. It's all coming in the 80s. You just wait as soon as we hit the year 1990. Oh, the year 2000, big round number. They keep writing books and people keep buying them because it makes them feel special. They have secret knowledge revealed and they don't. And it's sad. It really is sad. The things in this chapter that don't make sense to us made sense to them. We just have to know the end of the story. And it's the same as in Ezekiel 38, 39. God wins. Don't fear. God's got this. And God's got what's next. Sometimes when you hear people say, God's got this, it's just kind of a blow off or believe even though you're hurting. Don't do that. But it is true, God's got this, whatever your this is. But I would like for you to add something to that. And God's got what's next yeah he's got the next one too um, and then that hell that lake of burning fire that's made for the devil and his angels that's what it's for last bit and we're going to really do this quickly because um, i've kept you so long and i've got other people i'm supposed to be talking to today
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. And there was no place 